Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced and presented by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Today, I'm very excited to bring you a conversation that I got to have with two of the co-directors of Youth Verdict, a coalition of young people fighting for climate justice in Queensland who just won a groundbreaking case against Clive Palmer's planned Waratah coal mine. Marwa Johnson is a Weirdy Woman, co-director and First Nations program lead at Youth Verdict, and Monique Jeffs is a white settler based in Minjin and one of the original founders of Youth Verdict. Marwa and Monique, thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us on the show. Love to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so exciting to even get a bit of your time after this massive victory. Um, maybe before we jump into it, though, I'll get you both to introduce yourselves for our listeners. So Marwa, did you want to go first? Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, Watamoli, my name is Marwa Johnson. I'm a wordy woman, a part of the Bureau Nation in North and Central Queensland on the um, east coast of Queensland up there. I also have ties to Yemen, uh, Kalali, Bigambul, and Kangli Nation as well. I uh, lived in Mianjin for a long time, now up in Farnells, Queensland on Palmer Country, uh, just outside of uh, Gimoy on uh, Jabagai Country. I'm also First Nations lead, uh, campaigner for Youth Verdict, have been with Youth Verdict for two years now. Yeah, and just um, loving being a part of this moving train thing that we've built here with Youth Verdict and love working with Monique, who's one of our co-founders. Yeah, hi, I'm Monique. Um, I live on Yagra and Tuba land in Anjan. I um, am a white, non-Indigenous young person and I grew up at towards Gatton, which is um, still kind of Yagara country. And I am one of the co-founders, like Mara said, of Youth Verdict back in 2019, um, started with a bunch of other young white people as well um, that were really passionate about climate action and climate justice. And Youth Verdict has sort of evolved and like been an absolute privilege to have Marawa come on board as another co-director um, and really shape what Youth Verdict has become, which is a space for like, young people to fight for climate action that is really grounded in First Nations justice. Yeah, awesome. And I mean, I think both of you sort of stating your positionality in the place that you're located is a really important part of this campaign as well. And I understand that the campaign launched properly in 2020. It mounted this challenge against Clive Palmer's Waratah coal mine project in central Queensland's Galilee Basin. So uh, could you tell us a bit about the projected impacts of the project on the climate? Monique, do you want to go first? Yeah, for sure. So basically, um, Clive Palmer's Waratah Coal Project is another project in the Galilee Basin, which people might know from Adani, which is now called Bravis. And basically, it's yeah, a huge coal mine bigger than Adani. And basically, like any new fossil fuel project, it's going to push us over any climate agreements we've made and push us over 1.5 degrees of warming. And that's already having climate impacts we're already seeing the climate impacts on this continent and I might pass over tomorrow to talk about some of like what those impacts are already having in terms of like causing drought and sea level rise and um, heat waves and our case was about 
centering the First Nations voices of people who are experiencing those impacts already. Yeah, so I think why we really decided to, I guess, centre First Nations evidence of climate change on country um, in our in our court case in terms of YV deciding to have exclusively First Nations witnesses. And this was about really, um, I guess, wanting to design the case and put forward the evidence of our witnesses of what they're seeing of climate impacts on country put it forward in a way that I think it it's really clear how climate change and I guess the injustice of the climate impacts that are happening to First Nations peoples already first and worst affected, but obviously the least contributors out of everybody to the climate crisis. And we really wanted to put forward, I guess, um, the evidence in a way where we could talk strongly to like how colonisation, capitalism, racism, all of the isms really um, sort of have created the climate crisis, but also especially in terms of First Nations people and thinking about human rights and how Australia was founded on, you know, human rights abuses and the denial of First Nations humanity through the doctrine of terra nullius, meaning the land belonged to nobody when clearly First Nations people were here. So um, part of exclusively having First Nations witnesses was about that and being able to tell that story really strongly. But I think, you know, as we talk to our witnesses and obviously they're showing us where the sea levels are rising, where they've lost, you know, 10 metres of shoreline in the last couple of years, where the last line of um, coconut trees that are holding the sandbank together have now you know fallen into the ocean where they're having to consider what the cultural and like in terms of the social fabric of their their communities um, what the impacts are when all of the low-lying areas of their like burial sites and whatnot are being impacted by erosion and sea level rise, but also drought because of the changing weather patterns and essentially not being able to continue traditional gardening practices. And so having to become more reliant on the local stores or canteens that are on the islands, which obviously being in remote communities um, up out in the far eastern islands in the Torres Strait where, you know, a tin of baby formula can go to like $80 a tin, like climate change is forcing First Nations people to be dependent on these sort of ridiculous overpriced, um, I guess, food and like losing their food sovereignty through the negative impacts of climate change. Um, But those effects aren't just in the Torres Strait as well, like it's happening on the mainland. We have two witnesses who are also from the mainland in Far North Queensland, so one from Gimoy, Cairns, and on another uncle from uh, Hopevale in Cape York and just talking about uh, losing mangroves or, you know, and these really um, delicate ecosystems, but also like not being able to pass on traditional hunting practices or fishing practices as well, because, you know, the seas are getting warmer, the, the, the sea life is moving further out to deeper waters where it's cooler. And so just also the risk of safety and the risk to human life um, by having to travel further out on, I guess, less um, familiar seas in terms of the weather changing and the winds, the, the timing of the winds as well also changing. So real life interruptions to First Nations people being able to live out their lives in the way that they do it through culture is applied and so 
yeah, those are just some of the climate impacts that we're looking at and the evidence that our witnesses put forward um, to the land court. And, you know, we're just absolutely overjoyed and elated that for the first time ever, uh, coal mine in Queensland has been recommended for refusal on human rights grounds. What we really wanted to do was show, you know, human rights apply to all people, but also I guess have First Nations people run that sort of baton with human rights because for so long, like, we've been separated from our humanity uh, by the powers that be, the colonial powers that be. And so, yeah, we just thought it was a really great way to sort of shift how human rights are talked about. They're not just a white concept. They didn't arrive on, you know, come over the sea. Um, They've always been here embedded in our law. And it's actually about looking at First Nations law principles in terms of relationship to land that we can create that shift, you know, to take action on climate change. Yeah, totally. And I think um, this is really centered in the first law protocol, which I'm hoping we can get back to shortly. But Monique, I thought maybe you could also speak to some of the uniqueness of the legal argument that you brought, which also focused on uh, the impacts of climate change on young people and on future generations, considering that Youth Verdict's challenge against the Waratah coal mine was based on the project's detrimental impact on human rights and First Nations cultural rights. And this was really the first time that a coal mine in Australia has been challenged on the basis of human rights. Yeah, so yeah, this is the first time um, that it's a coal mine in Australia has been challenged on human rights. And so I think this whole legal argument was quite unique because it's also the first time that a coal mine in Queensland could be successfully challenged on climate change grounds. And that's because of something called the perfect substitution argument, um, which basically is just an argument that mining companies have been using for a very long time that if they don't dig up and burn the coal, someone else will. So therefore you can't argue that you shouldn't dig up this coal because of climate change. But in our case, because of a New South Wales case as well, where they overturned the argument, it meant that we could argue that this mine is contributing and will contribute to climate change. And climate change is already having impact on all young people. Um, And so that was where this case really started, was an argument of young people's human rights. And then we evolved that because we got to a point where we were like, okay, but how is this any different to, you know, what's already been argued, what's already happening where, you know, we've had the climate strikes and that kind of thing of like, I guess, the argument in the public sphere of young people have a right to a safe future just like every other generation has had and that's not going to happen because of climate change. But um, I guess there's also how do we centre climate justice in this And so there was, I think I personally had that like tension of like, I'm just another young white climate activist sort of, you know, talking about this, but what about, you know, First Nations people who've already lost so much through colonisation and are still fighting. And I was really so grateful that Marawa decided that this is something that she wanted to be part of and really reshape the legal argument. Um, and to centre, because obviously First Nations people can speak to all human rights, but it's only First Nations people that can speak to cultural rights, which are now embedded in the Queensland Human Rights Act. 
I think that leads really well into in, into the next question because Youth Verdict did develop this first law protocol to embed First Nations cultural rights into the proceedings against Waratah Cole. And as you mentioned, Monique, um, it's really you know sort of impossible to fight for climate justice on stolen land without centering First Nations people. So Marwa, can you tell us a bit about the protocol and how it was used to meaningfully integrate some of the concerns of First Nations people in Gimoy and Zenith Kess with the groundbreaking introduction of on-country hearings at the land court? Yeah, great. So a little bit about kind of how the First Law Protocol developed, like where it came from. So um, I I wanted to be involved with the case. I hadn't quite joined Youth Verdict yet and felt like I could have more impact initially um, by working with the legal team, EDO, Environmental Defenders Office, in terms of, yeah, like reshaping the case design of like who the witnesses for Youth Verdict would be, I guess what our criteria is and sort of like what um, arguments we really want to put forward, what we want to centre. We wanted to do that by, yeah, really shifting it to put cultural rights on the top and then arguing that for First Nations people, um, all of our human rights are lived through our culture and being able to exercise our cultural rights. And so that's kind of how we've had the cultural rights aspect of the case um, amongst the other rights that we're arguing for as well really, I guess, come to the top and and be the um, overarching thing that our witnesses' evidence has all sort of fallen under. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station with me, Priya. I've been chatting with Marawa Johnson and Monique Jeffs from the Climate Justice Group Youth Verdict about their historic victory against Clive Palmer's Waratah coal mine. Let's get back into it. My initial involvement with the case was really, um, and with Youth Verdict, was really um, to ask to be a First Nations witness. And there was, um, I guess, a lot of room to kind of make the case as strong as it is now. How are we going to do that? And really, it was, we got on the road, we went out to communities, we, like, used personal connections that we had, and also, like, other First Nations people who were interested, who were sort of following that the Human Rights Act had been implemented in Queensland and we're following how that was going to be used next. And obviously, YV, we'd filed our objection, but in terms of like what the evidence looked like yet and what we were actually arguing, I think there was still a lot of room for design there. So we got on the road, went up to meet First Nations peoples where climate change was happening, you know, in far north Queensland, up in Cape York. Um, but then also it was like we have to go to the Torres Strait and you know even if we don't go to like the northwestern islands where climate change has been a lot more obvious and having a lot more I guess severe impacts for longer we still had to sort of you know get Zenith Kess on the record and have First Nations witnesses from the from the Torres Strait that can talk about their experience of the negative impacts of climate change. But it was through doing all of this and I guess um, myself working with EDO at the time thinking about, okay, so like are we expecting First Nations people to write, you know, like 40-page written statements of like who they are and all of this and how this is impacting them or, you know, through the Queensland Human Rights Act and with Section 28, the cultural rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, are we able to um, apply to the court for the the Human Rights Act and Section 28 to apply, not just to the recommendation at the end of this court process, but to the process itself? 
and that's where I guess the idea of on-country evidence came from. So in like myself with two of the lawyers on the road for two weeks going out to meet with mob and interview them about the um, observations that they're having or their experience that they're having of climate change and really it, it was a, a difficult process because there's the legal way of doing it, the Western legal way where witnesses can't speak to each other and all of this. And then there's the proper mob way of doing it where the knowledge is the intellectual property of these First Nations. You know, it doesn't necessarily always lie with one particular person or one particular family. It is collective, whether it's within the nation or the tribe itself or within the family. Um, it was through a lot of conversations with the lawyers, hours and hours on the road, where it was like, okay, these are the main barriers to like First Nations people being able to participate in this process in a way where their evidence does does justice to them. And actually that this, you know, it's about time that this court process starts to work um, in a way that First Nations people can I guess, feel comfortable going through the Western legal system, especially the land court. Yeah, and so we were able to get some legal advice from top um, Indigenous barristers as well and then submitted that to the court. Ultimately, the First Law Protocol as a whole wasn't adopted and that was because we had a bit of pushback from the state and Waratah themselves. But the big wins that came out of it, of course, was the on-country evidence. And so the first time ever the land court travelled to where climate change was happening um, in terms of considering the recommendation for approval of a mining lease and an environmental authority. And then also the first time concurrent evidence, which is a group of First Nations people, you know, of the same culture are able to give evidence together. Yeah. When I was looking at the way that the first law protocol uh, was developed and the sort of impact that it has had on the case and on the victory, it really seems like this is how climate justice activism has to continue going forward. Um, And on Friday, the 25th of November, Queensland Land Court's President Flora Kingham handed down the recommendation that Queensland Minister for the Environment Megan Scanlon reject Waratah Cole's application for environmental authority and that Minister for Mining and Resources Scott Stewart also reject Waratah's application for a mining lease. So, of course, this is a huge, huge victory. And Monique, I was hoping that you could start us off with some of the precedents that have been set here for similar challenges, both in the state and across the country. And Marwa, feel free to chime in. Yeah, so this is the first time that a coal mine has been recommended for refusal on human rights grounds. And so maybe I'll explain first, like how the judgment was handed down by President um, so she made her decision to recommend that they reject um, Waratah's applications by balancing all of the evidence that she was given. So we won on all of the arguments that we put forward. So that was on the direct impacts of the mine on the Bimble Box Nature Refuge, on the indirect impacts of climate change on human rights and cultural rights of First Nations people. President Kingham gave no indication of how much weighting she gave to each of the arguments. Um, so that protects the decision because if Waratah Cole or the government want to be like, oh, this part of the decision isn't true or like then the decision can still stand because of all the other factors. And so while it doesn't set legal precedent for future decisions, it does set a practical precedent 
um, for challenging new fossil fuel projects in the sense that most often the land court will follow previous decisions. And it also, she made the decision based on the facts of the case and we can run that same those same facts again and like you were saying earlier this does set like gives a blueprint for other people to run cases really grounded in climate justice that centers first nations voices Mara did you want to yeah no I just want to yeah second all that so like we won on everything which is really unheard of so from you know our understanding of winning on the direct impacts the indirect impacts so climate change impacts and then also the human rights arguments that we made is just like a such a huge thing because from my understanding it'll take something big in terms of if Waratah do want to appeal it'll take something really big I think to um, undo any of those particular wins and it was made on the facts of the case and I think her honor was you know really brave in making the decision that she made but also very clear that it was on the yeah it was about the facts of the case, the substitution argument is dead just because the mining lobby want to argue that, you know, what consequence does it have to climate change if another country or, you know, somebody else is going to dig the coal up and burn it anyway. But Her Honour was really clear about saying the coal is mined in Queensland, it's exported from Queensland and Queenslanders are already feeling the impacts of climate change. It doesn't matter where the coal is burnt because at the end of the day, the impacts on the human rights of Queenslanders is still going to happen due to climate change. It doesn't matter whether the coal's burnt in Australia or overseas through export. And I think, yeah, it's just like absolutely groundbreaking that the substitution argument is dead in this particular case. And, you know, the mining lobby has really been relying on this for a long time and it's kept them on life support. Um, so hopefully, you know, this means something bigger down the track for other, I guess, projects that are proposed and they have to think twice about, you know, the human rights impacts that they're going to have in conducting business as usual. Yeah. And like, I think, you know, so much uh, mining has been approved off of the basis of like really shoddy environmental assessments. But this decision that's been handed down really looks past that to say no matter where these fuels will be burnt, they're going to be a contribution to global emissions and will have an effect on climate change. So it doesn't matter where that happens. It matters that they stay in the ground. And uh, Marwa, as you were saying before, I understand this win was in part enabled by Queensland's state human rights legislation. And you spoke to the impacts that that had on being able to put forward the case for on-country hearings. But I was wondering whether you and Monique could speak to the importance of developing a human rights charter at the federal level to support action on climate change. Yeah, great. So Queensland Human Rights Act is like only the second charter in Australia first one being in Victoria. I think there's they're looking at developing a human rights charter in the ACT at the moment, but definitely there um, is a need for a federal human rights act. And one of the things that's really important that we actually wanted to talk about in response to this question is that there is no clearly articulated and outlined right to a healthy environment in any of the 
human rights charters that exist in Australia already, so the Victorian one or the Queensland one. And so in terms of just thinking about what a federal act might look like, it's going to be a big battle in terms of the relationship, the reliance and the commitment that Australia has to the fossil fuel industry because we're talking about WA as well. We're talking about the NT where they're trying to crack the Beedaloo Basin at the moment. You know, they just, uh, the Tiwi Islands just had a win against Santos last week. But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of work to do in terms of developing a federal legislation. But I think before that needs to happen, in all of the work that I've done over the years with the Wanga Jagalingu Family Council and now the deadly work that I'm able to be a part of with Youth Verdict, something that's really come clear every time, and I think this is why YV like spent 18 months having conversations about how best we could align ourselves with supporting a First Nations land back, land rights and sovereignty agenda. And so the biggest thing that always comes up when we're, for me when we're thinking about, you know, at a commonwealth, at a federal level, creating legislative change is really about, I think, like we have to first adopt the UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So it's adopted by Australia, but I think that it really needs to be formalised in some way. So in terms of like a federal human rights agenda and federal human rights legislation, I think what needs to come first or to be done simultaneously and it cannot come second is legislating of the UNDRIP or formalising it in some way and then also ensuring that the right to healthy environment is clearly a standalone right in any federal human rights charter as well because, yes, we've won on direct impacts, yes, we've won on climate change and, yes, we won on human rights, but I think the right to healthy environment is, you know, one of those rights that really ties it all together. And also, like, what's exciting about being a part of this court case with Youth Verdict is the way that the case really remarries environmental law, First Nations rights and human rights together, because, you know, since 1788, all of those things have been separated out from each other. I think uh, Marawak really yeah covered it all I think just like we've talked a lot about or I've learned a lot of from Mara talking about and pointing out the real like disconnect even with things like native title which obviously yeah is pretty terrible in terms of a human rights framing and just how separate the current system sees First Nations rights and then environmental rights and I think like that's the history of the conservation movement and the environment movement sitting within the colonial frame and ignoring First Nations people. Like that's what I sort of see as my sort of role in Youth Verdict and Youth Verdict's role is really like talking to the environment movement and, yeah, and the climate movement and like really pushing for us to do better in terms of like grounding in First Nations justice and bringing ourselves into the frame of First Nations justice and realising that any work on First Nations justice is going to be lead to climate action. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really important thing to emphasize. And it does lead into something that I was interested in, in asking you both about, which is, you know, given that we've seen the federal government's fairly lukewarm commitments to climate change mitigation and adaptation so far, 
Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of First Nations-led collective organizing to push for urgent action towards climate justice and maybe how people can uh, start getting involved in making change where they are. And Monique, because I know that you've been involved in this since 2019 and then Mara was was approached and became a part of this organizing, I was wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on this and then Marwa. Yeah, I think my main reflection is just really, I guess, being able to check myself and like leave space and realize that I think especially as like a young white person in Australia like I don't actually I'm not best placed to know the answers to all of these things and I think like my biggest role in this was really getting the foot in the door and saying yes to hold space open for this case to happen but then go to people who are already doing work and and like I guess respond calls to action because I think like that's what Mara was able to do was go to people like Lala Gutchen in Torres Strait um, who's doing amazing cultural revival and language revival work in her own community and sort of like bring her into the fold and amplify her voice and others voices. One of our witnesses Aka Florence Gutchen she is uh, from Paruma Coconut Island which is a low-lying central island atoll uh, in the Torres Strait, and she's actually the sister of um, one of the Torres Strait eight. So, like, very strong, you know, women in that family who are speaking up for their island and taking action, whether it's through being a part of the Torres Strait eight with the United Nations Human Rights Committee complaint, or whether it's being a witness on our court case. Like, there's just a lot of, I think, movement at the moment, especially with a lot of the climate cases that are coming out of the Torres Strait. There's also another case uh, happening at the moment as well. And so what that tells us is while there are different sort of legal litigation advocacy avenues that are being taken by various First Nations people from the Torres Strait, but also um there's uh, other cases that are being looked at from the mainland as well, is that there's a lot of First Nations people affected by climate change who are willing to take action, willing to be a part of litigation, want to stand up and, you know, speak up to the powers that be, whether that's the government or a mining proponent. And so, yeah, these are leaders in their own communities already, you know, and they don't necessarily need us to give them a platform in their own communities. But the work that we want to do is really support these leaders who see what climate change is doing to country and the impacts that it's having. Um, and they're already speaking up in their own communities and we really want to support them to, I guess, get that onto a mainstream platform as well. And really, like, everybody that is our witnesses, you know, they're already, like, leaders in their own right. They're already cultural people in their own own right. They're already, I guess, on their path of, like, super strong and really deep cultural knowledge. And so the work that we want to do is, is, is really just, you know, hopefully creating a pathway where their voices can be heard more. Um, but what we really want to do is we want to, yeah, be able to support those community members to get their own mob together. It's something that we want to do. I think we're talking about a lot about the impacts of climate change and like the communities that are feeling those impacts. But the work that YV wants to do is really connect the communities that are on 
the direct impacts, so the on-country impacts of where the mines are with the communities where the negative impacts of climate change are occurring and, like, I guess, build solidarity within First Nations communities, again, in a culturally appropriate way that's, like, reflective of the respect that our old people have for each other and and really, you know, part of the work that we want to do is really provide a platform, create a platform where I guess the mainstream can support our witnesses, but also investing in the cultural richness of First Nations people in Queensland. So investing in the cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, saying that these cultures are important, they need to be protected, but also they should be resourced to be able to grow and maintain throughout time, um, just as long as we've already been around, you know, what is our future looking forward? Yeah, so Wabi, we definitely have a litigation focus and we want to definitely in our work pay respects to like all of the black litigation that's come out of Queensland, whether it's been Kawada, Yana versus the Commonwealth, Mabo High Court decision, which defeated Terra Nullius, the Wick people. Yeah, we want to pay homage to that legacy of black litigation um, and sort of that's, I guess, where we see our niche being. But like Youth Verdict is still a very young vehicle for creating change. And um, we're really excited about, you know, what it could turn into with the guidance and I guess the direction of the communities that we're working with, where our witnesses come from. Yeah, I mean, it's I think, you know, what I understand from that is really like people are already taking action where they are. First Nations people uh, living on their own country are seeing the effects of climate change on their country. They're experiencing that in the everyday and they are raising challenges against this, but it's about actually getting behind those, you know, that kind of organizing and cultural authority that already exists rather than, you know, attempting to to duplicate it by non-Indigenous people. So I guess just to wrap up, what lessons do you take forward from this and, and what happens next? Monique, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I think speaking to like what happens next, like on a really direct level is we're really keen to hopefully meet with both ministers. Um, so we've reached out to them, still waiting to hear back. Our witnesses are really keen to meet with the ministers and directly talk to them face to face. So we really want to like, I guess, replicate what happened in the case in the public sphere of really amplifying the First Nation evidence and their stories about what's happening with climate change and the impact it's having right now and speaking that directly to decision makers yeah and I think that's sort of the lessons that I'm taking forward is what worked so well in the case was yeah taking the decision makers to where the impacts are happening and really amplifying those people's stories yeah so I really want to be continuing that yeah definitely just seconding everything Monique has said I think a learning is really that I guess when you're coming up against the powers that be, you know, and it's pretty daunting, I think still like we haven't really fully understood and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, so maybe in the future we will, the the real implications and sort of the ripple effects and impacts of the court decision in our favour. But also I think it's just like trying to, you know, remain positive about this work and understand that there's a bigger picture going on here 
I guess when you're working in like First Nations issues all the time, it's hard to not um, get, I guess, pretty down about the reality of the situations. But, you know, our witnesses and the communities that they come from are just so strong. And I'm just like reminding myself constantly that like, we got this because look at how deadly we are. Look at what we've done in three years imagine what we could do you know moving forward and I guess what we really want to do is sort of that big impact sort of precedent setting sort of litigation work that hopefully creates like easier pathways for First Nations mob to run their cases through um, the legal system if they want to but yeah just reminding myself that like we've got this you know and if climate action is in the hands of our witnesses, then we're in safe hands. It's just really about doing the work, I guess, to make the mainstream fall in line. But yeah, it's happening and we're fighting every day and we're also winning every day. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's so important to to be able to take a moment to step back and, and sit with the massive win and, you know, other wins that have happened recently in this space to say, you know, this is possible and what what is required is really the resourcing and the people power behind First Nations communities that are already doing this work. I think the other thing I've really learned and I think is really important is to push back against, I guess, like this idea of what I call like white urgency, which I think can sometimes take hold to like fit a certain deadline. And like, I think that's especially important working with like First Nations people is to slow down and things do take time. And I think building those relationships and trust takes time. And I think it's important to allow space for that to happen too. In today's show, I was joined by Marawa Johnson and Monique Jeffs, two of the co-directors of Youth Verdict, who successfully took on Clive Palmer in the Queensland Land Court to block the establishment of the Waratah coal mine. You can follow Youth Verdict's work and support them at youthverdict.org.au and on Twitter and Instagram at at youthverdict. And you can also find them on Facebook by searching Youth Verdict. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on unceded Kulin Nations land. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Our theme music is by Ripley Kavara, and past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.